0: Lauren.
1: Mike, if a billionaire offered you a ticket on a spaceship to Mars right now, would you take it?
0: Uh, yes. I would say if it was a free ticket and if it was a round trip ticket, I would take it.
1: <laughs> I think the second part might not be a guarantee at this point, but we do know that we can send car sized robots to Mars and it's pretty wild. And that's what we're going to talk about on today's show. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired.
0: And I'm Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired.
1: And today we are tapping our science desk. We're joined by Wired senior correspondent Adam Rogers, who has been covering all things coronavirus, color spectrums, and today super cool Mars rovers. Hey Adam.
2: Hello. That's right. Don't when you if you can't send a person, send a Dalek. That's right. <laughs>
1: That's the rule. <laughs> so by now. You likely all know that on February 18th, NASA landed the Perseverance rover on the surface of Mars. Its mission is to hunt for signs of alien life and generally just collect as much information as possible and send it back to us here on little old Earth. And to do that, it's been outfitted with this array of high tech gear. And this is going to allow us to learn about this planet in profound ways. So, we're going to do today's show a little bit out of order. We're gonna talk about some of the tech that this rover is equipped with first. And then later we'll talk about the broader implications of this mission to Mars and why we even want to go there in the first place. So Adam, let's start with a couple notable things about this rover. One, it's collecting audio. And two, you just wrote a story on wired.com this week about the cameras on Perseverance and how they actually perceive imagery much differently than we do. Tell us about this and why this is significant for this mission.
2: Well, there's something almost philosophical that you have to address if you're going to send not people to explore another planet, but robots. Which is, you're trying to acquire like sensory information, um, and and some of that some of that can be quantized, can be can be sent back as data. You know, the numbers for certain. Uh, for, for for certain analyses that you can send an instrument to do. And I, I can talk about some of that. But some of it is you want to send a robot that can look at stuff, that can hear stuff, in this case, that can sense this world. And then that that information goes through the sensory organs, the mechanical sensory organs, the technology that you send, the microphones and the cameras and the sensors, the instruments. And then it has to get home. It has to get back to us somehow. Us, not wired reporters, but... You know, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, and, and then the, then there's a whole a vast team of humans who process all of that through their own machinery, and then it becomes something that they can that they can look at. It's this the, this arc uh, where uh, of how of how data becomes information and then becomes knowledge. So we humans send these robots to Mars. To, to to some extent, to learn how to send better robots to Mars, a lot of the instruments on Perseverance, that's the rover that's there now, are, are versions of instruments that went up on other missions, and now they kind of, the, the scientists at JPL and at all these universities at NASA, know how to make them work to do more of what they want to do, which is to look at their surroundings in ways that that we humans... Uh, you know, would, would would I be able to identify easily as looking at stuff, to, to see things in the colors that human eyes also see if we were standing there, and also to look at them th- it, multispectrally, hyperspectrally, and other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that a human eye wouldn't perceive, but the eyes of this rover, the eyes, you know, in scare quotes that I'm making on a on a screen, even though this is an audio medium, so that's not helpful at all, but pretend (laughs) you can see it. Um, The eyes of this rover can see into the, a little bit into the ultraviolet partway, into the infrared, and, and also can see x-rays and have, and are using a laser to project light outward, to, uh, to obliterate some bits of rock and see what, what happens when you do it, Um, and to listen with microphones that, um, that might be more sensitive than a human ear, uh, might be, but then all of those things get get reduced or transformed or changed in some way into meaningful knowledge, so that we can understand
0: more about what what's on this other planet where humans have never been, but humans have sent a lot of our stuff. You were saying that each rover that has gone up to Mars, at least the ones that we've sent, have had progressively better technology on them with each version, and I think it's kind of interesting that this rover that just went up now, Perseverance, is essentially like the first rover of the iPhone era. You know, Curiosity launched in 2011 uh, and it was designed for a period of five or six or seven years before that. So the imaging technology on it is very representational of like that time in imaging technology, the imaging technology that we have now and the imaging technology that we have on Perseverance is, pardon the pun, astronomically better than the tech that we had 10 years ago i mean if we think about like how bad your instagram photos were in 2011 and how fantastic they can be now then you can see just like as far as mobile technology goes and just imaging sensors the leap has been huge that's a it's a really interesting observation i i, I think that's right although i
2: will also say that like one of the one of the instruments that i wrote about um is called the mast cam z and so it's this but this binocular camera Two, two cameras linked together, a left and right eye, um, on top of the, the tower that's on the rover. So it, it sits up a little bit high. And and the Mastcam-Z, the Z in it is for zoom because there was a Mastcam on Curiosity. The, the Z has a zoom capability. Um, and it, it does a bunch of stuff. It, it's there to identify targets of interesting scientific, uh, potentially interesting scientific value and also for to be able to look around and navigation and take pictures and do a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, the, the, the CCD, the charge coupled device, the optical sensor, uh, the two in Masscam Z are off-the-shelf Kodak uh, CCDs, um, and they have the they have the in, in front of them the bare pattern of pixels. That, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but like the red, green, green, blue. I think sure, yeah. That that that's that would be familiar. That if you could if you could look into your phone, you would see it. Um, and then, but, but what Mascam-Z does, what the experiment does, the instrument is take advantage of some capabilities that like our phone cameras don't really do, um, to do much more, um, because, because the CCDs also can see into the infrared a bit. And so if you put the right filters in front of them, you can do even more science with them. So there is some sense that, you know, we sent up a camera that would be the same camera that a lot of people have in their pockets right now are sitting on their, sitting on their desk. I, I, I can get sort of derisive about it, but there's something important, I think in the, the pictures that. Are starting to come back already that include parts of the rover itself and people will describe those as selfies as mars selfies the camera <laughs> taking picture of itself and and you know nasa among all agencies is very very good at um at its own promotional work it's saying like here's the thing you here's the picture of the thing we're doing you know there are pictures of there's video of the landing which was so dramatic but also like a, the video of the landing is there to be video of the landing um it has engineering value but also publicity value but but I think the calling it a selfie also includes the recognition of, um, the, the, it's not personhood because of course it's not a person of the machinehood of the individuality of the, the, the human, the humanness of the technology that, um, that we sent that has to do a thing there that's doing technological work and, and seeing Mars through a, a kind of filter, um, that's akin to, but slightly different than the filters that, that if, uh, Mike, if you took that billionaire ticket up to Mars, how you would see it through the visor of your of your vac suit? <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so talk about the color correction that NASA is doing to this imagery and why that's important.
2: This is a, a typical problem of pictures from space generally, and also pictures from Mars. This has been an issue that the that research teams have had to deal with and figure out how to deal with um, with every Mars mission uh, for a bunch of reasons. Um, any picture that that you have ever seen from from the Hubble, you know, those wonderful pictures of, of star fields or star nurseries that the Hubble Space Telescope took, any of those things, a, a lot of these instruments collect data in parts of the spectrum that the human eye doesn't see. And so then those come back as essentially numbers as like, you know, databases. And then you have to decide, somebody has to, a research team, a science team has to decide, okay, well, how do we represent that that color that's not a color that human eye would see as a color in the image that we want to produce. So one of the things that they send up with Perseverance, there's, there's, a, there's targeting stuff. There's calibration, um, like color swatches, you know, little, little Pinterest boards that they send up on the, <laughs> um, uh, on the rover so that the camera can look at those and then also see out and they can go, okay, well, I know what color that thing is, that calibration board is really, what color that would be on earth. And so I can adjust the colors there the other colors to make sure that the colors are right right in terms of that calibration here's the thing about that the light that's coming down through the very very thin it's like one percent of the atmosphere that earth has but this very thin atmosphere on mars it's the same starlight that we get on earth um because we're in the same solar system same sun mm-hmm. you've all seen that uh, <laughs> but but less of it hitting mars because mars is farther away from the sun and on Earth, that light is going through a thick, atm- relatively thick atmosphere, full mm-hmm. of water. Mm-hmm. On Mars, it's going through a relatively thin atmosphere, full of red dust, iron oxide. So the light actually hitting the surfaces is different. So you have to make a decision at that point. Do I want to see it as it would look on Earth? Or do I want to see it as it would look on Mars? Do I want to see it as it would look on Mars to the rover, which is a bunch of different ways? Or do I want to see it as it would look on Mars to a human? Huh. Do I want to see it as if it was on Earth, right? So, the, so all those colors, so which is the real image? Well, there isn't. Right, because then you're real... making a
1: judgment call, essentially, yes. as to like what, how it should look.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and it's good judgment. This is, there's nothing wrong with that, necessarily. Right. It's just, you have to make, you're making active decisions about that. So if you're trying to do other science, if you're, instead of just looking, you know, instead of looking out to see what the vistas are, which are amazing, there's an instrument on, um, on the arm that Perseverance has called Pixel. Uh, which is uh, sending X rays basically to um, to try to analyze the chemical structure, the, the actual molecules that it's looking at in the in the rock surfaces or in the uh, w- you know whatever the arm is pointing at. Um, you know we humans don't see those as colors at all. The X rays do make those different minerals fluoresce in different ways. Those th- that information comes back as just numbers. And then when they when they publish the eventual paper on it, they'll make a, a, a map, a false color map of those colors. And the the woman um, who runs that team. a a really a renowned um, field geologist and and planetary scientist named abigail allwood um she she said yeah we we fight about that all the time about what colors the false map should be because that can it can lead you astray when you look at the false color map and you can say oh well that area is red because it's iron oxides or whatever but it's it's not red it's just some numbers Mm -hmm. she says the image they get back the the pixel instrument um has a does about a postage stamp size field of view at a time with 6000 individual pixels on that each, uh, I think 1000 microns apart or something. And, and they, uh, she says the data comes back as a hyperspectral data cube, which is made of the, the, the size of the postage stamp. And then each dot that it's looking at has multiple, um, multiple spectra accounts. For each of those dots, and I just really like the
0: phrase hyperspectral data cube.
1: <laughs> you just wanted to get it in there for this podcast. I just wanted to say I appreciate you, Adam.
0: I put one of those in my coffee each morning.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the super thin atmosphere on Mars. That you're describing that makes all of this image capture, you know, pretty challenging. It also makes sound wave capture really challenging. I was joking the other day on Twitter that, you know, throughout the pandemic, we've been hearing podcasters say, oh, it's so hard to capture audio at home. You know, I'm home. I don't have the best equipment. I'm in my closet. There are street noises. Right. And then like you have Perseverance, who's basically like, hey, um, I'm dealing with some really challenging conditions here. <laughs> right. And 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 sound waves are really affected by The atmosphere Um, and we tend to hear uh, lower frequency sounds from Mars better than higher frequencies and also it's incredibly windy there so talk about how the rover is capturing sound and also what we hope to learn from those sounds.
2: Sound also travels as a wave but unlike the Mm -hmm. waves of in the electromagnetic spectrum which are waves in a in fields fluctuations in electrical fields and magnetic fields waves in an almost virtual sense. Sound is a, a wave that we'd understand better as just as waves move in water, waves also move in air and atmosphere. And the, the, the sounds that we perceive on earth are really just waves and fluctuations in the pressure of the air that impinges on our eardrums. Um, and microphones like the ones that all of us are talking into right now do kind of an equivalent of that and translate those fluctuations in air pressure into electrical signals. In our ear, they're translated into neuroelectrical signals. On Mars, because the atmosphere is so thin, there's less air for those fluctuations in pressure to move through. Same reason you'd have to be wearing that vac suit, Mike. <laughs> but, and, it's, and also it becomes in a way easier for the low frequencies to, to move in the same way that like the base goes through a wall better than the mm-hmm. treble does. So scientifically, what do you capture? Well, you can capture meteorological information. We'd like to know things. Again, I say we as though it's the wired office. No, scientists would like to know things. But we They're, would like, like to know We'd like too. to know too in a <laughs> less professionalized and more interested way. Yes, that's true. Uh, scientists would like to know things about the Martian atmosphere and how it, uh, how, how, how it would work, what it would be like if somebody was there and what, what's happening on it how, it, how dust moves through it, um, what those fluctuating conditions will be like. Um, I think there's also, a, again, an emotional completely valid reason that you, it gives you more of a presence the, the wider you can expand the sensorium of the of the robot up there, the more we humans can understand what it would what it would be like to be there. I think that the the sound of the of the wind there, that's some real Ray Bradbury, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson stuff to think what that must be like. Um,
1: to can we that. actually hear that? Boone, can we can we play a short clip of that? That, of course, is courtesy of NASA. Uh, So it just, it just sounds really windy. But you're right. You're like, wow, that is Mars.
2: It's interesting too. NASA describes the sensors because it has chemical sensors as being akin to taste and smell. Those are described for humans as the chemical senses. Um, It doesn't, you know, as a robot, there's not enough intelligence on that robot to translate that taste and smell into a to the, the primary indexicality of being in a place and sensing the things around you. But it, it, it's a, a sensory package that becomes similar in, in many ways to the ones that we move through our world with It has sight. It has two microphones. So it has binaural, you know, stereo sound like we do. It has something like taste and smell. Um, it doesn't, I don't know that it has much of touch because there's not the same kind of tactic, um, uh, you know, feedback, haptic feedback, like to understand how rough or how smooth it is. Although you, you'll get a sense of some bumpiness, I suppose, from the wheels.
0: That's okay. I mean, we've all been living without the sense of touch for the last year anyway. So Yeah,
2: yeah, that is It's uh, a good way to think about that. I really do keep thinking about all of this as our our separate journeys on our own little individual generation starships um, with occasional inter- intermittent comms with each other. Uh, it does feel like that.
0: You know, it's funny uh, how you, you said that, you know, it can give us uh, getting all this data back and the visual data mixed with the audio data can give us all a very emotional connection. The thing that I found was most striking is like, you know, we all grew up with images of space travel from like the images shot on the first moon landing in the late 1960s through like the Skylab grainy 12 frames per second, you know, video of spacewalks in the 1970s space shuttle stuff. But the video that we got back from the Perseverance landing, was just incredible. It was like HD, perfectly clear. It looked hyper real in a way that I have never seen space footage look before. It really felt like you were there looking down at the surface of Mars, which is just bananas when you think about it.
2: You know what struck me about it? uh, I've been thinking about this especially because in my house we've been re-watching some 90s science fiction TV for reasons I I can articulate, but you don't care. Um, And one of the things that is really striking about it is how the special effects were just not good because they weren't ready yet. They were trying, and the difference between that and when you watch something, when you watch The Expanse now, and it's essentially you know like well they really look like they they shot that in space. You know, it's sort of perfect because they have enough money and the effects have just gotten that good. And and the, the video of the Descent, of Perseverance Descent, had the dust blowing up, you know, and, and the sky crane moving away in the dust. And really, and it's a terrible thing. We, I, I, think, I think, I try not to do, I try not to do the it looked like a movie thing, because that's just weird and distancing, and it makes you less present in a lot of ways in your life. But it really, but I was struck by like, oh, that looks like, I remember when James Cameron movies used that dust stuff to obscure that the effects weren't that great. So there'd be dust in the field and like aliens. And a lot of the, the shots of aliens and in, and in Terminator, uh, there's a lot of dust in the, in the way. In the same way that like Ridley Scott used to use a lot of rain, you know, in his effects shots. So you couldn't see the wires pulling the spinner up in Blade Runner or whatever. And it was like, oh, it turns out <laughs> that was more accurate <laughs> than <laughs> HD, like Cameron was right. Space <laughs> is dusty.
1: <laughs> All right, we're gonna take a quick break. Uh, I do want to mention that Wired also ran a super awesome story about a Los Angeles musician who helped design the microphone that is on the Perseverance rover. It's a really cool story about how just a conversation with a friend from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory over drinks led to this incredible collaboration. Um, it, and to Adam's earlier point, I mean, some of this stuff is really off the shelf. It's like if, if fries did still exist, we might be able to go there and get these microphones. Uh, but check that out on wire.com. We'll link to it in the show notes, and we'll be right back. So, Adam, there have been been five U.S. rovers that have successfully landed on Mars. And each one has been more technically advanced than the last and therefore capable of collecting more and more diverse information. But all this kind of begs the question, why are we doing this? You know, people like Elon Musk say they want to colonize Mars, but the planet is obviously uninhabitable to humans. Are people actually going to live there someday?
2: I think that uh, I I agree with kim stanley robinson the science fiction writer and frankly political theorist who wrote one of the great um trilogies about what how human beings would go to mars even he has changed his mind uh, since he wrote these books red mars green mars and blue mars about human beings permanently settling on mars he he now says he thinks it's going to be more like antarctica which is to say there will be a permanent science outpost there so there will be humans there probably year round uh, but it won't be there won't be cities it won't be uh Surfing in the on the Utopia Planitia or whatever um, as as I think um, Elon Musk and other uh, would be colonizers would like to say, I think the fact that they use the word colonize is a uh, pretty that that 's them telling on themselves i think um, that <laughs> that's not it, it's a very it is a it is an uninhabitable environment and and even the people who really think far ahead about whether you could terraform mars. Um, disagree pretty mightily on whether even the resources are there that you could turn into a biosphere, a, a livable biosphere. And it is very hard for me as a science reporter to um, to think about that kind of stuff and imagine what sort of people Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk think would be worthy of going versus those who wouldn't, as we are in the process not of terraforming Mars but of areaforming Earth um, and making it less and less of a friendly place for, for human beings and other things to live on. Um. Because, you know, the biosphere on Earth will adapt to what we do to it. There will still be living things. It just will be harder and harder for more and more people. Um, and more and more of the things that we like living with, like the food that we grow and the animals, the plants that we like. So I, I, I'll i put it this way. I don't think that's a reason to, to study Mars. There are very good scientific reasons to study Mars. And one of the things that the main objective of Perseverance is not so much to find, for example, living things, find Martians on Mars now, but to see if it can find... Um, evidence like we find on earth for ancient life here for life three or four billion years ago to find similar evidence there on mars um, these sort of specific shapes and structures on a microscale uh, of the geology combined with the right kind of mineralogy in a material called called stromatolites to see if they can imagine that there that there had once been billions of years ago a microbial mat, microbial life On Mars, when Mars was a warmer, wetter, more
0: friendly to life place like Earth is now. You know, one of my great fears is that they're going to discover some like vast stores of cobalt on Mars.
2: Right. Well, uh, the the idea of mining asteroids or some material that is of obvious capitalist financial value on Mars that then makes it worthwhile to go to send people there to get it. I mean, I suppose that's that's imaginable. Um, One of the things that Perseverance is trying to do is figure out how to make oxygen there as a way of do, putting you know materials in place in advance uh, of sending humans at some point. Uh, I think um, a lot of what the the planning, for example, the um, NASA has a planetary protection office whose job it is is to keep keep things from uh, invading Earth, but also keep Earth things from invading other places. And they've, they've had a lot of controversy over what the rules are for what you can send and where you can land things on the moon and on Mars. Um, and in, in for some missions, the, um, the people studying Mars have intentionally avoided places that might seasonally have liquid water, for example, because that might be a place where there, would, there could potentially be something living there now. One of the things that we know about life on Earth is that basically, wherever there's water, there is something alive here. Um, by and large, even in the most unfriendly, you know, the highest salt levels, highest metal content, highest temperatures, the extremophile life that lives on earth. So in some cases we've, we humans have tried to avoid that, gone to the places where things wouldn't be living on Mars because we don't want to mess it up. Um, not, not even worrying about bringing it back here, but not messing it up there in ways that, you know, we've, we've messed up a lot of places on on this planet. We've made them less friendly, less habitable, um, more poisonous and we'd like to it'd be nice to not do that everywhere we go
0: (laughs) agreed so the place that we landed this month is essentially what they believe to be a dead ocean right
2: a a lake a river leading into a lake It, it, it it is as one researcher said to me not everybody agrees with that but but he said if there's a place that's likely to have the signs that something once lived there this is that place it is um it's a crater that was uh, the, the delta of a river. So there was a river that then spread out and came over the sides of these, of these canyon walls and, and laid sediments down. And it's in those kind of sediments that, that researchers have found the signs of ancient life um, here on Earth and that they hope to find it there in these different colors and layers that they can identify both visually and by texture and by their mineralogical constituents.
1: So Adam, what would that science outpost look like on Mars and how, how would we build the structure to make it habitable?
2: Yeah, that's such a cool thing to think about. Uh, You'd really, you'd like to not have to take everything that you need with you because it's really hard to move things from a gravity well into space. It costs a lot. Weight is the issue. Mass. So it would be really great to be able to use the materials that are there to transform the soil or the rocks there into the structure. Uh, You can imagine kind of digging down into the ground, into the regolith, maybe in one of the canyons, because part of the problem with not having an atmosphere is Mars is just positively lit up with ionizing radiation, um, like everything from sunburn to cancer. So you want to be out of that as much as possible, be shielded from it, It'd be nice to not have to build shielding to do it. It'd be nice to have a place where there was already water. There seem to be places where there's frozen water there now. Those would also be places where there might be living things, so you don't want to mess that up. But if, you, if there wasn't, if they were sterilized, but there was liquid water, you could use the ice that was there. You could use chemical processes to transform carbon dioxide in the regolith into oxygen, potentially. That's something that, um, there is there's instrumentation on perseverance to try to learn how to do um and then all of that would then be studded with with science doing stuff um in the same way that uh, that like south pole station is or any of the other antarctic stations that different countries have to study the the weather to study to look outward to have a telescope there that you could see through a thinner atmosphere and not have to deal with the bad seeing conditions that happen here on earth you could imagine you know, doing the kind of geological mining for potential resources, even again, getting them home is difficult. It has to be, they have to be so valuable that it's worth sending the rocket and then sending the rocket home somehow. Um, maybe that's, you know, that's possible. And uh, I I think I sometimes have this like rueful joke that one of the things that the International Space Station studies is how to have an International Space Station. And I don't know if that's, like, okay, so are there going to be more stations? Are there going to be better stations, bigger stations? Like, what, what's that for? Why do you need to learn how human beings live in space if human beings aren't going to live in space, if there's no place to go? So I don't know. Do you, you, know, do you need a Mars outpost to learn how human beings live on a Mars outpost? There's, the gravity's a lot less. It's not like in, when, you, when they show Mars in the movies, people don't kind of bounce around. But um, I actually rode, years and years and years ago, rode the, the vomit, vomit Comet, the NASA airplane that does the parabolic arcs, and that at the top of them, there's free fall, so that you feel what it's like to be in um, in zero g. Uh, it's a, it, the vomit comet is appropriately named, and because um, I did. But also, um, they can they can adjust the the shape of the parabola to simulate different kinds of free fall. Um, so they do a couple of arcs. They did when I when I did it, they did an arc that was the moon, and an arc that was Mars, and it doesn't feel like just walking around. So even just being there will be quite uncomfortable. Um, it's, it, 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 you, I guess you get used to it. I mean, people stay on the ISS for a year or more, but, but it um, it's not, would not be easy living. Um, you can't grow food in that soil. You have to take all that with you, or you have to take you know, the TV dinners that astronauts eat. Um, so it would, uh, the inside of that early station would look a lot more like a space station than it would look like a, um, the Lars family evaporator farm on Tatooine, at least initially.
0: Uh, all right, Adam, last question for you. Would you go to Mars?
2: At this point in my life, though it pains me to say it, I probably would not.
0: Why Why is this point in your life different from any other point in your life?
2: Because I have responsibilities to other humans here on the ground.
0: You mean like credit card debt?
2: <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. You mean I could get out of that if I go to but no, that'll be the one thing that works. The comms will be like, "No, your bill showed up." It's it's online billing, so you can just log in. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean that I think that the um, the risk of that trip for a very long time, even from now, even when we start to send humans, the risk of that trip will be so high that I and I feel strongly that like, no, I I have a family here, and I I uh, I want that to be uh, to be a priority. I think. <laughs> you know, I think my, uh, I think my partner probably would do it though. <laughs> not because, not, not because, not because she feels differently about this, but because it's Mars because she's compelled by it. Like it's, it's like, yeah, but no, that's, that's the thing. You get that chance. You take it. And I understand that too. I do. I've seen it on the TV. It looks great. <laughs> I mean, I'm not the only one watching those old nineties science fiction shows in my house. You know, they that's a family thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Well, I look forward to her, uh, hashtag Mars life Instagram posts. Man, she'd be a great astronaut.
1: All right. Let's take a break and then we'll come back with recommendations and a special guest for recommendations. Okay, so as I mentioned, we have a special guest this week who is joining us just for the recommendations portion of the show, which is unusual for us. Our regular listeners will know this person for his absurdly simple recommendations that Mike and I really enjoy making fun of. And he has another great one this week. So we just, we had to bring him on. Galad, are you there? I'm here. All right, tell us your recommendation.
3: My recommendation this week is eat cheese.
1: (laughs) Tell us about this.
3: Well, uh, so as we've discussed on the show, I love egg and cheese sandwiches for breakfast. Calori and I have even back-channeled about it to some degree, uh, about preparation methods. So anyway, as I was making my egg and cheese a couple weeks ago, I was looking at the package of cheddar cheese that I had in my hand, and I noticed something I'd never noticed before, which is that the, the number of calories in the cheese wasn't actually that high. It was like 110 calories per ounce, which is you know, pretty similar to all the stuff that I have in my pantry, like whether it's crackers or cereal or whatever. And as somebody who's pretty like nutrition conscious and and tries to watch my weight, I just found that kind of curious because everybody or, or most people kind of have it in their head that cheese is a fattening food. This sent me down quite a rabbit hole where I started Googling. uh First, I looked up cheese consumption by country per capita. And then I like compared that to countries rated by BMI. And I noticed that the countries where people eat a lot of cheese are Northern and Western European countries where people are a lot less fat than they are here in the United States. And then I started looking into the research on the core actual, what do we know about the link between eating cheese and, and weight gain and obesity. And I was kind of stunned to find that all the research or the, 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 the vast weight of the research, if you will, uh, finds, at worst, just kind of no correlation between eating cheese and gaining weight.
1: I have to say, when Galad first told me via Slack a few weeks ago now that he was going to write about this, um, we made some pretty cheesy jokes about it. You know, I was like trying to poke some <clears throat> holes in his cheese theory, and um, I was like, come on, man, Chago. This doesn't sound like a Gouda story, Lauren. And- why?
3: Why would you advertise that you did this? <laughs> like you don't, you don't. Ha- there's not like a disclosure rule for a podcast.
1: Because I love making dad jokes, and we should just have a podcast of dad jokes. Obviously, there's something about whoa, 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 wait, whoa. Wait, wait. I'm
2: sorry. That's I. I got to step in. That you call that a dad joke right now? <laughs> I mean, I love those kind of jokes too. But like, I even I'm resisting making those jokes right now. And I'm the dad on this thing right now, so okay.
1: okay so, so in fairness to Goulard, what he ultimately presented as evidence kind of um, <clears throat> melted my brain. Ah, so, very good. <laughs> Do you have a
3: question, Lauren?
1: favorite? <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask you, what's your favorite kind of cheese?
2: At, at long last, Croque Monsieur, have you no decency? <laughs>
3: You want to know my favorite cheese? <laughs> you don't want to know the science? We've got Adam Rogers in the frigging studio right now, one of the premier science writers, and you're asking me for my favorite cheese. Fine, I'm glad you asked. Um, if it's, it depends on the context. So cheddar is a great melting cheese. Like unmelted, it's I could take it or leave it. But if I'm having an egg sandwich with melted cheese, cheddar is really fantastic. Um, if we're talking about cheese in a salad, I am a devotee of feta which crumbles really well and is super salty. Um, and then just like gun to my head, I get to eat a bite of cheese right now. What's it going to be? Probably a, a French goat cheese with a, a proper rind on the outside.
1: And where do you get your cheeses?
2: The store. Cows or goats mostly, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> Buffalo sauce. I, like, I actually like, I like beaver cheese, Adam.
3: <laughs> <laughs> They're a mammal. They're a no, mammal. That's true.
2: You're
1: right oh all right in fairness i asked for this i basically kicked off the segment saying we enjoy making fun of galad and he has successfully turned the tables on me so um good job galad thank you actually it's always a pleasure having you on the show now that you have that fancy new microphone that somebody really cool on staff sent you we'll have to have you on more often
3: yeah i was gonna say my second recommendation this week is work at a place where half of your colleagues do consumer tech um, because and, are, and and then a subset of them are really nice because then somebody like Lauren Good will mail you, will overcome her fears of the UPS store and ship you uh, a spare microphone across the country from California to Washington, D.C. So you can come in in crystal clear audio and talk about cheese.
1: I go to FedEx and UPS and USPS on very rare occasions these days, only for people <laughs> I really like. So you're welcome, Gulad. Thank you. All right, Adam. As our actual guest this week, what is, Gilad stick around, Adam? What's your recommendation? Right, I, have,
2: I have two recommendations. My one recommendation is to follow Gilad's recommendation and eat cheese, because he's absolutely right. Uh, my second recommendation is I will tell the story super fast. My children both have been um, doing a lot of blacksmithing during the uh, during the pandemic. They're they're both taking blacksmithing because you can do that outside. There's some classes. It's the East Bay, you know. And uh, and so my, my youngest broke one of his store-bought knives, a mora Knife, really good. And he said, oh, I want to make this into a folding knife. But that required that we had to drill through the blade, this hardened steel blade, to put the pivot in. Um, which, after going through about six different kinds of drill bits, because I don't have a drill press yet, and I just using a hand drill, and it would I only got about a 30-second of an inch through this thing, and we, every weekend we'd go out there and fail again and again. Finally, I went on this engineer... Slack group that I'm part of and just asked for help. And they pointed me to a, to a, to granite tile drill bits. The drill bits that you use to drill through like tiles for tiling a walk or whatever. I got some of those off McMaster car and finally was able to drill through the hardened steel Mora knife blade and make a perfect good little hole for this folding knife. So I recommend granite tile drill bits.
3: Answering the question everyone was wondering.
2: Says the guy with the, says the cheesemonger over there. You're going to come at me for my recommendation after after recommending cheddar? I mean, <laughs> at least I'm up in here with, like, Cotswold with the chives and the onion, the Cotswold. It's delicious. Slice of that mm, and cracker. That does sound good.
0: <laughs> my children have been taking blacksmithing lessons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Berkeley, man. Berkeley, man.
1: Berkeley. <laughs> Berkeley. All right, Mike, what's reptile. your recommendation?
0: Uh, Well, it has nothing to do with blacksmithing, but uh, I am going to recommend a website that I think everybody who is interested in the stuff that we talk about on this show would also be interested in. It's called restofworld.org. It's a relatively new website. It's a couple years old and it's technology news, but it's technology news through a very different lens than what you're used to if you read, say, Wired, or if you read the New York Times or Washington Post or any of the big tech publications like The Verge. It is... A website that looks at technology in non-Western countries and in countries that normally don't get reported on for their technology scenes. Um, Just looking at the homepage today, there's a fantastic story, which I shared widely earlier this week on Twitter, about uh, the trend in big Chinese cities towards small golf carts instead of cars and instead of scooters. Uh, They're not really legal uh, they're not really safe, but people are flocking to them because they're dirt cheap and they are an easy way to get around in China. Uh, there's also a really fantastic story about uh, the Indian version of basically parlor. It's called Ku. It's a social network built on um, the tenant of free speech. Uh, and of course, all the right wingers in India are flocking to it. Uh, There's also another fantastic story about a Mexican Instagram star uh, who is married to a politician and she's using her platform on Instagram to campaign for her politician husband, uh, which is like also sort of maybe not allowed. Really fantastic stuff. It's a nonprofit uh, and they publish pretty regularly. So make it a stop in your news diet. It's called restofworld.org.
1: That's great, and our former colleague Louise Matsakis is now writing for them.
0: Oh, that's right, I completely forgotten. Thank you for reminding me.
1: Yeah, so go check it out.
0: What's What's your uh, recommendation, Lauren?
1: Mine is gonna be so lame compared to everybody else's here, except maybe it's better than Galad's. <laughs> um, or you may need one of these if you take Galad's recommendation, I'm not really sure. Uh, so for Christmas this year, one of my brothers sent me a massage gun. And he did not send a Theragun, which is, the I think, the brand most people recognize at this point, and they are incredibly expensive. This is a, kind of an off-brand. Um, it's called VI, and it stands for <clears throat> Vigorous Innovations, and uh, it's $140. It's a quiet percussion massage gun, and it's, you know, designed for athletes or anyone who feels like they want to give themselves a massage. And um, I I like to cycle and run, and so my IT band is very, very grateful for this um, off-brand, much less expensive, quiet percussion massage gun. I'm quite happy with it. So that is what I'm recommending this week. How do you
3: point a gun at your own back?
1: Well, as I mentioned, Galad, if you were listening, <clears throat> I don't Sorry, use what? it on my back. <laughs> I use it on my IT band. So I basically use it on my legs.
3: Okay, I was listening and I <laughs> didn't know what an
2: IT band was. I, I thought that was I, the people who you ask for help if your email is not working. I got really <laughs> And they play music and they on the side. Yeah, <laughs> <Thank> You're <Scalad. laughs>
1: Right. No, most journalism outfits have actually gotten rid of the IT departments, leaving us all to our own devices, quite literally, to figure shit out. (laughs) So, no, it is not it is not that IT. It is the IT band that runs up and down your leg. And and like, yes, it's it feels it's painful to massage it, but uh, it can get very tight. and And then it's also once it's very tight, it's painful to exercise with a tight IT band. And so the. The massage gun really helps that quite a bit. It's
2: true, though, that the, using it on your back or parts that you can't reach would be hard because, of course, guns don't massage people. People massage people.
0: <laughs> so you really right,
1: right. You can do it on your, like, um, on your lats, you know, but then you're sort of you're never fully relaxing. Right. But, yeah. Um, I
2: keep thinking that those would be good to shoot a massage at someone else. From a distant like you could get like a sniper <laughs> massage gun.
1: Yeah, Adam, uh, have you heard of this thing? Uh, it's called COVID-19. <laughs> not sure if you're familiar with it, but um, probably not a good idea in certain situations to let someone get that close to you at this point in time. Or we may be getting close to that. But that's what
2: I'm saying is a remote, like a one on a really long, on like a tripod mount with a long arm, like a 10, 10 feet away, like getting massaged at
1: 300
3: yeah, yards. I can picture yeah. this.
2: I'm
1: with yeah. you. All right, let's put NASA on this. This has to be their next mission. Instead of like a, a you know a giant mast with a laser blaster, we need we need a freaking massage gun on a robot arm. Okay, uh, this has gone off the rails, and I'm happy about that. Thank you so much to Adam and to Galad for joining us for this episode. And Adam, um, tell people where they can buy your new book.
2: Well, the book is Full Spectrum: How the Science of Color Made Us Modern comes out May 18th. It'll be on all of the electronic places that sell books from the Amazons to the bookshops to the independent bookstores who you want to keep in business for when we can all leave our homes and go browse once more. Uh, and I promise to put more links up in places like Twitter, where I'm at Jet Jocko.
3: And if you email Adam, he will mail you one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, email Adam Damn directly. He on. loves that. <laughs> and Gilad, where can people acquire a selection of your fine curated cheeses?
3: You know, the... the I, I am glad you asked. I uh, I just decided, like while you were asking that question, I'm going to start start my own cheese subscription service. Um, so it's called Monger, like M O N G dot R. <laughs> and uh, you sign up, you give me your credit card information, and then I just
0: sometimes mail you a cheese. <laughs> Just in an envelope by itself. <laughs> yeah, just like
3: not even not just like a slice, like a slice of brie in a in a regular envelope with a you know fifty cents.
2: But you're gonna do it. There, there'll be like a chat and a social function too, where everybody gets on to the to the network and eats the cheese together. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: Wow, what a time to be alive. I, I think
3: it's easier to acquire a fine curated selection of my cheese thoughts. You can read my article cheese actually isn't bad for you on wired.com shouldn't be too hard to find it it's right above Adam's article on the most read
1: (laughs) right, thank you everyone for listening to this wild show if you have feedback you can find all of us on twitter just check the show notes and like we said Adam really enjoys email so just send him lots of email this show is produced by the excellent Boone Ashworth goodbye for now we'll be back next week